It is good to see all of you again tonight. It's, I'm enjoying the week, and hopefully that we can benefit some from some of the lessons from not tonight, that we can put it to some use in our lives and to have a better appreciation for our Lord. Uh, I, as I said earlier in the week, uh, some time ago I was thinking about uh, series and I put the series together and preached it a few times and uh, felt like that maybe it would put a little more focal point upon Jesus and upon his work and what he does on behalf of us. We're going to talk about Jesus, our high priest tonight, our great high priest, as the text states. And another uh, occasion he says he's one that's uh, ever living. And we'll notice those as we go along the various points concerning the priesthood. But if you will, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And while you're turning there, let's remember that the uh, Hebrew letter was written to Christians who were of Hebrew background. And many of them were either had turned back or were in danger <laughs> of turning back to Judaism to leave Christ and go back to the law and that system that they came out of and the purpose of the Hebrew writer is to discourage that, to discourage them from going back and show them what the consequences of going back was and uh, what they would be giving up when they went back to the Judaizing or the uh, Judean uh, Ju Judeo uh, system of Judaism that they had come out of and so I want to read 14 through 16 uh, verses of the fourth chapter. Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. To me, those words are very encouraging, or should be very encouraging to a Christian, and should make anyone who is thinking about leaving that and going back to the old system uh, to have second thoughts, to think about what they would be giving up if they went back to that system. We have a high priest uh, that cannot be touched, uh, uh, or rather cannot, uh, did not sin, and cannot be touched with the uh, one that can, it says for, I'll get it right in verse 15. For he have not, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In other words, we have a priest that knows about our weaknesses and knows how we need him because of those weaknesses. And he has sympathy and empathy toward us because of the role that he plays as our high priest. And so we can come bold, and the idea of boldness there is we can come with confidence. We can confidently turn to uh, God through the high priest and he uh, labels the 
throne upon which the high priest sits as the throne of grace. And we come to that throne of grace that we may find two things, mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There are just times when we need help. And there's just time when we need mercy. And there's just time when we need the grace of God to see us through. And we have that in this great high priest. Now, the Hebrew uh, Christians understood the priesthood. They may not have understood a whole lot more, but they were in a position to know the priesthood as it existed under the law of Moses. And they understood the role of the priest, and they understood the role of both the high priest and the common priest. There, there were those who were the priesthood, and then out of the priesthood, there was one that was elevated to that of high priest. But uh, they understood the role that that priest had, as well as the role of the ordinary priests that were under him, what their uh, job was. And it had to do with gifts and sacrifices on their behalf. They recognized that they would carry into the temple and they would appear, as it were, before God. And they would take the gifts and sacrifices on their behalf and offer them to God for them. Notice in the fifth chapter in verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So the high priest's job was to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. And he was ordained uh, per, uh, with things pertaining unto God. But though they, they as priests then, they were taken from among men. And they were men just like everyone else. But they were set apart, ordained, uh, in things that pertain unto God. And uh, 8th chapter, verse 3, is ordained to offer up gifts and sacrifices. So they recognized that they were the uh, high priests. That was their job, was offering up gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. And not only that, but they mediated between God and man. In 2 Timothy, uh, rather 1 Timothy 1, 2 and verse 5, for there is one God, for there is one God. Then he goes on to say there's one uh, mediator between God and man, that man Jesus Christ. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. The one man was Jesus Christ. Therefore, you had one high priest between God and man, and that's Christ. Uh, and he stood between uh, the sinner, as it were, and his father and God of heaven. And their job was to, in that intermediate position, they were to take the offerings of and the sacrifices for sin of the people and then that with their own sins, take them and offer sacrifices for them with the uh, sacrifice of atonement and other sin offerings. Uh, they presided over a number of uh, sacrificial services, you might say, uh, in their jo job or in their role as priest. They presided over the, the annual atonement uh, 
where there was a, an atonement made for sin, sacrifice made for the sins of the people uh, throughout the nation. And it was an annual thing. And then there were various sin offerings that they, in addition to the atonement, that they offer from time to time. You can read of the uh, annual atonement in Luke, rather in Leviticus 16. And in Leviticus 4, you can read of the various sin offerings. Then they had uh, daily grain offerings, or uh, some translations say uh, meat offerings, and others say food offerings. But the various uh, grain offerings or vegetable offerings or whatever, uh, in Luke, uh, I won't say Luke all the time, Leviticus, chapter um, 6. Now, he presided over all of these uh, services and all of these uh, uh, offerings and sacrifices for the various uh, reasons and for various things. But they also, there were the common priests, and they served on the high priest, and they served in some capacity uh, connected with almost all of these sacrifices. But they did not, uh, of course, have the same uh, role as the high priest had, and the common priest could not enter into the Holy of Holies. But the high priest could enter in, and he entered in and offered uh, sacrifices for himself and for the sin of the people. But we need to understand from that that those sacrifices and those priests were just a type of that which was to come. Uh, and it was just a foreshadowing of what was to come afterward that it pointed to a greater high priest and it uh, pointed to better sacrifices that was to come. And they were just a type, and then Jesus was to come and supply the antitype of the high priest and the sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats and of lamb and so forth. Uh, they were just typical, or typified, what was to come in the way of sacrifices later on. Uh, those both sacrifices for sin and sacrifices in general, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But we, we need to understand uh, that on the New Testament system that each Christian is a priest to start with. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, and we'll notice that also along with verse 9 in that chapter, where Peter says, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. Holy priesthood, keep that in mind, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable uh, to God by Jesus Christ. So you are built up a lively, lively stones or living stones. You're built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. Christians compose that spiritual house. They also compose that holy priesthood. And verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, and so on. So here you have uh, each Christian as a priest, a part of that holy priesthood, holy meaning to be set apart for uh, 
divine purposes. And so they were set apart as priests. They who? They who are Christians. We who are Christians are set apart to be holy priests. Not just priests, but holy priests set aside for God's purpose. And also a royal priesthood. And it's interesting to me, he uses the term royal priesthood because we're going to learn later that under the New Testament uh, system, there's a direct connection between the high priest and the king. And so Christians are part of that priesthood under that high priest and that king. That makes us a part of the royal family, as it were. So we are not only sanctified, set apart as holy priests, we're also a part of a royal priesthood serving under a high priest who is not only a priest, but also a king. And so we've got both royal priesthood and uh, holy priesthood referring to Christians themselves. So we all have a priesthood, each of us. And uh, in verse 15 of the 13th chapter of Hebrews, by him, therefore, let us uh, offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to God. Our sacrifices are spiritual sacrifices. And, and spiritual sacrifices is that the fruit of our lips. Therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to God in His name. Whereas under the first covenant, they offered up uh, fleshly sacrifices or carnal sacrifices. You had the blood of bulls and goats. You had the uh, various other uh, material sacrifices. They're offered, but now you have that which is immaterial. You have spiritual sacrifices, the uh, sacrifice of praise unto Him. And when we come together in assembly, everything we do uh, has an element of offering up a spiritual sacrifice unto Him by the fruit of our lips. When we come together, we sing together, we pray together, we study and discuss the Word of God together, we take the Lord's Supper on Sundays together and, and point out the spiritual significance of that. And even our giving has a spiritual aspect to it. When we give, we're showing our fellowship that we have with that which that uh, offering goes. And so it's all the spiritual emphasis on what we offer unto God as sacrifice now as opposed to the uh, fleshly emphasis that's on the past sacrifice and especially the fruit of our lips giving praise unto God. And Christ is our high priest. The third chapter, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So in the rest of the lesson, I want to point out uh, a contrast between the two priesthoods, the, that which was under the law and the present priesthood, and give some reasons why the Hebrews, or anyone for that matter, should choose Jesus over that old priesthood. First of all, 
Jesus is a sanctioned high priest. He's our sanctioned high priest. There's a comparison here, not a contrast. Uh, the Old Testament priests were sanctioned of God. Uh, the New Testament priests are sanctioned of God. But it points out in uh, the fifth chapter of Hebrews and verse 4 and reading through verse 6, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. What he's saying here is under the Old Testament priesthood that nobody could take that honor to himself to just up and say, I want to be a priest and get to be a priest. He couldn't. He couldn't take that honor to himself. He had to be called to that uh, place, to that work of the priesthood. But it goes on in verse 5. So also Christ glorified himself. Jesus, under this new system, was not a self-appointed priest either. He had to have the sanction of God in order to be a priest. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And he saith unto in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The point here is Christ under this system that he did not make himself high priest. He didn't glorify himself as high priest but he was put in that position by the calling of God and he mentions that calling coming through two prophecies of the Old Testament in the book of Psalms. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And another place, he says, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll get to Melchizedek later. But anyway, the point here is that just as those Old Testament prophets, not prophets, but priests, uh, these Old Testament priests uh, did not take the honor upon themselves, but were called of God, this priest didn't either. He didn't take that honor on himself because he was called of God. Now, some have abused this passage and have said that's how preachers are called today. And they're not able to preach unless they're called of God. Nowhere to say that a man could not preach unless he's called of God, but he could not be a priest without he was called of God. And one of the things that shows that Jesus was a legitimate priest was that he was called of God. He didn't take the honor on himself. Uh, and it, there had to be a change of the law in order for him to be a sanctioned or lawful high priest. Without that change, he could never have been priest. Notice the Hebrew letter. Again, we're being Hebrews most of the night. Chapter 7 and verses 12 through 14. Hebrews chapter uh, 7 verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things have, are spoken pertaining to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. If he's going to be a priest under the old system, he had to be of the tribe of Levi. So he says, 
unless there's a change of the law, he can't be a priest. He can't be that legitimately. He can't be lawfully. In order for there to be a uh, a him to be a high priest, then there had to be a change of the law. And so he's telling these Hebrew folks, basically, you can't hold on to Christ and profess to be a Christian and go back to the law because under this system, under the New Testament system, there is a different uh, tribe I mentioned and not the tribe of, it's not the tribe of Levi. But he says, of which tribe Moses spake nothing. And incidentally, we, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, uh, about various things, like, well, where's the Bible say not to? Where does the Bible say not to do this and not to do that? Well, the question is, where's the Bible say it? Because that when the Bible is silent, it, it's not permissive. It's prohibitive. Uh, if in this case, he said that uh, a priest had to be a Levite. But it said, what did it say about it? one of Judah? None. Nothing. Nil. As long as that law stood, Jesus could not be a lawful priest. There had to be a change of the law that did authorize one other than a Levite to be priest. And this, because Jesus sprang out of Judah. And if one wants to use the silence of the scriptures to justify anything, he's got to be able to show that he has the power to change the law in order to include that thing. Because it's not included in the law that he's uh, under right now. Instrumental music, for instance, is a good example of it. The Bible says something about singing, says something about music, and it's singing, make a melody in your heart. Well, uh, where's the Bible say not to use instrumental music? Well, it's not there. What does the Bible say about it? It says nothing about in the New Testament about using instrumental music in worship. Nothing at all. You go by what it says and not what it uh, doesn't say. And if you're going to insist uh, that it's lawful, you've got to show where in the law has been changed or wherein you have a right to change the law. Because if it says nothing, it's not authorized. So he said, I wish the law saith nothing. Uh, so the silence of the scriptures do not uh, authorize things. It prohibits things. Uh, of course, under that which is authorized, they may authorize uh, a generic term, and there may be some things that are not specified that fall under that generic term. Like I tell a child of mine, you go down to the store and you get uh, a dozen apples. Well, when he goes and looks in the store, he's got to remember, Daddy didn't say a word about oranges. He didn't, he didn't say anything about pears. He didn't, didn't say anything about that. So I don't have the right to do it because he said, get apples. But now he's got another problem. There's some green apples, the red apples, and the yellow apples there. Which one of them should he get? 
He's got to carry some apples back. Does he have authority to get a green apple? Yes. Does he have authority to get a yellow apple? Yes. A red apple? Because that's a specific under what he is authorized. And he, he wasn't told to go get a dozen red apples or a dozen green apples. He just told apples. But that which is authorized is apples. And these specific kinds are, are included in the term apple. If he said go get fruit, some fruit, he got oranges and uh, banana and whatever. So, but the silence of the scriptures, if it doesn't say anything about it, and it, there's nothing in it that would include what you're thinking about, then it's prohibited. It's, uh, it's prohibits rather than includes. Another thing I want to notice here is he's not only our sanction, but a suitable high priest. Suitable in that he knows both sides of the coin. He knows what it is to be a man. <coughs> he knows what it is to be God. And if somebody might raise the question and say, reckon what God would be like if he were a man? Well, we got the answer. Jesus was God in the flesh. We know what God would be like if he were a man. Uh, and so uh, that places him in a position. God, the Father, uh, never would have experienced humanity without Jesus coming to the world and be, being as a man. And no man would ever experience divinity in another system. He had to be He's in a position where he understands both sides of the coin. And so being such, being both man and God, when man approaches, and you think about this, when you approach God in prayer, and when you approach and you wonder if God understands how I feel, or what my <coughs> reaction is, does he understand? How can he understand he has never been where I am? Wait, whoa. He has been where you are. <coughs> He's there. So you can't claim that. And he's in a position where he can not only academically, but experimentally, he can understand both sides of divinity and of humanity. And so it says in Hebrews 2.14, For as much then as the, the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things <laughs> pertaining unto God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that 
he himself hath suffered and been tempted. He is able to succor or to encourage or whatever the word you want to use instead of succor. He is able to succor them that are tempted. Having taken on the flesh, he now has behooved him to be like unto his brethren so he can be a merciful and faithful high priest. Uh, how many times have you ever talked to someone about maybe little differences you have and you wind up saying, you just don't understand. If you, I, I don't know how many times my wife said that over the years. <laughs> you just don't understand. Well, most of the time I have to admit I don't. Uh, but that, that goes on uh, between us a lot. Now, when we're talking to God and when we turn to God for help, we turn to God for forgiveness of our sins and for our mercy and for our grace that we need. We can't say, well, you just don't understand. And when we read where he rebukes me for something I may be doing, or I'm convicted that I'm doing something wrong, I can't say, wait a minute, you just don't understand. He understands. And so we can't say to him, well, you may have convicted me of that, but I, you just don't understand how I feel about it. Yes, he does. He understands exactly how you feel about it because he has had experience in both the divine side and the human side. Hebrews chapter 4, sin in verse 14. Sin, then, we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but all points was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly, as we pointed out earlier, unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy to find help in time of need. And not only is he... Uh, traveled that route. He's traveled that route in its entirety as a route for us to follow. He has gone before us, lived the perfect life, died the death of the cross, and even <laughs> of the great trial of the uh, and suffering that surrounded the death on the cross. At no time did he sin, either in word, thought, or deed. And he traveled that road, raised, went to sit right hand of God on high. But he did that as a forerunner for us. Notice in 6th chapter and verse 19 of Hebrews, which hope we have, talk about the hope of a Christian, we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and standfast, which entered into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered even Jesus made an high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is our forerunner, we're the afterrunner. And he did that by keeping the, the law of God perfectly, being through all the suffering without sin, and then to be raised from the dead, going into heaven and for us to follow. And we hold on to him accepting his mercy and his grace as we go, being obedient children of his, we can go in the same route that he has into heaven after a while.
Thirdly, we want to notice that he is also our superior high priest. He's greater than Levi. If you're in the seventh chapter of Hebrews, uh, he points out how that he was greater than Levi. If he's greater than Levi, then it makes him uh, a, a greater high priest, a better high priest than the Levitical priesthood. Notice in the first verse of Hebrews 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, who met Abraham returned from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now he mentions Melchizedek. I had an aunt one time, bless her heart, and trying every time I try to get to talk to her about the plan of salvation or something like that, she would say, what do you think about Melchizedek? Well, then I'd have to take time out and do Melchizedek. Well, Melchizedek was a priest. He was a king, and he came out of nowhere. Uh, he was not a descendant of Abraham, as far as you could tell. He was not a descendant of anyone uh, that he'd have to be a descendant of to become a uh, priest. He came kind of out of nowhere. He did no record of who his ancestor was. Uh, unlike the priest of Israel, uh, later on, they had to depend on being a descendant of Levi. And then he narrowed it down. The high priest had to be of the descendancy of Aaron. But here's a man, there's no record where he came from, where his parents were, father and mother, are no record of where he went after this. He just popped up and popped out of the Old Testament history. Uh, and, and he appeared to Abraham when uh, Abraham had, was coming back from a slaughter of some kings that had uh, done wrong toward Abraham's uh, nephew Lot. But anyway, uh, Abraham played ties to him. And he's making the argument here in Hebrew chapter 7 that if he paid ties to him, uh, then uh, he would, that man would be greater than uh, Abraham. It says, therefore, uh, in verse 11, uh, he says, well, let me back up a little bit. Uh, verse 9, and as I say, Levi also has received tithes, paid tithes to Abraham. For he was yet in the lawns of his father when Melchizedek met him. Levi was still in the lawns, he was not yet born, of his forefather uh, Abraham. But Abraham, in this uh, argument, that Levi, through Abraham, his forefather, had paid tithes unto Melchizedek, and that would make Melchizedek greater than uh, both Abraham and Levi. So he says in verse 11, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be uh, called after the order of Aaron. So he paid tithes. Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. That makes Melchizedek greater. Now later on uh, it's pointed out that one was to arise that would be after the order of Melchizedek rather than after the order of Aaron, 
after the order of Levi. Therefore, this would be a greater high priest than the Levitical priesthood. And not only that, but the Melchizedek was both a priest and king. He was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, it says in Hebrews 7, 1 and 2. Uh, so both king and priest. And incidentally, the premillennial folks have a little problem with this verse. Uh, the premillennial people who say that they're waiting for God to set up a kingdom that he has not set it up now, that he came to the earth to set it up because of the opposition of the Jews, he went back to heaven and going to wait and come back the second time to set up the kingdom. The problem with this verse is, if he's not king now, he's not priest now. And if he's not king now, he doesn't have that office of priesthood. And they then, the premillennials who claim to be Christian, are operating without both a king and a priest uh, under this dispensation. If that uh, Jesus not become king at, uh, and sit on the throne of David uh, till he comes again the second time. But this uh, uh, king, this uh, priest, was uh, one that was superior to Abraham and to his descendants. Um, and involved in that, not only was he a priest and a king, and it makes Jesus now a priest and a king. Also, Jesus is our sacrificial high priest. He is both sacrifice, one who sacrifices and the sacrifice itself. So you've got a unique situation here. You've got him as a uh, sacrifice and is the one who does the sacrificing. So he's both the priest and the sacrifice. Notice the eighth chapter in verse three uh, and four. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hebrews eight, three and four. Every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat to offer. For if he were on earth, and that's talking about if he were a priest on earth like the uh, <coughs> Levitical priests were. If he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So he, as a priest, he's not offering the same type of uh, sacrifices as uh, they did under the law. So he said if he were on earth, he would not be able to be a priest. He was not of the right order. He was a, a one of Judah. And those who are on earth, uh, those after the Levitical priesthood, uh, they had to offer uh, sacrifice according to the law. But notice in verse uh, 7 of the ninth chapter, but into the second went the high priest alone every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The priest went into the Holy of Holies alone every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, but for the heirs of the people. So he says, the Holy Spirit signifying that the way of the holiest of all was made, not yet made manifest, while the first tabernacle 
was the stand, it standing, which was a figure of the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make them that did the service perfect as pertaining to conscience. And then he goes on to say, down in verse 11, But Christ being come an high priest of good things to come by a great and perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place. Now, once there means once and for all. He entered into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled with blood sanctified to uh, the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works and to serve the living God? Uh, then in the ninth chapter, verse 24, 924 for Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands which is the figure of the true but into heaven itself now to appear before the presence of God now let's look at just a moment you've got the sacrifice then and you've got the priest with the sacrifice uh, under the old testament law he would enter the uh, uh, sacrifice would be killed outside here and then he would enter in with the blood of that sacrifice he would enter in to the holy of holies and there he would offer uh, that blood for himself and for the people now that was typical of what Jesus would do when he offered his sacrifice Jesus here was he's the priest but he's also the sacrifice and that sacrifice, as the Old Testament sacrifice, had been slain or killed outside of the holy place, or the holy of holies, was killed. But the priest took the blood. He took the blood of the sacrifice and carried it into the holy of holies and there offered it. What I'm, what I'm saying is that the sacrifice was not completed until he entered into the holy of holies. Uh, the uh, the animal was slain, the blood was taken, and then that blood was uh, offered inside the Holy of Holies and uh, presented unto God for his sins, the Old, Old Testament uh, case, and the sins of the people. Of course, Jesus had no sins of his own, but what he did is he was killed as an antitype of the sacrifice of the Old Testament. But he also was a priest as well. And so he took his own blood, which was a sacrificial blood. He took it and carried it into the Holy of Holies when he ascended to heaven on high. Uh, to, me, to me, that uh, solves a problem of a couple of things uh, that people bring up from time to time. I have people mention to me quite often what happened between the cross and Pentecost? What happened between the cross and Pentecost? The people that uh, died here, which law did they die under? This, uh, the Old Testament law or the New Testament law? When I think about that, 
I, I really don't have a problem with it. Uh, for one reason, I'm not back there, it doesn't matter. But another reason is this, that though the sacrifice was slain at the cross, Jesus took the blood when he entered into the Holy of Holies. And he entered into the Holy of Holies just before Pentecost, and then he shed forth the Holy Spirit and began the New Testament order with on the day of Pentecost. I believe, and this is my uh, what it's worth, I believe that the the old law extended till the complete sacrifice was performed. It was the sacrifice was here was the killing of that of the uh, and the shedding of the blood, but that he, he as the priest took that, entered into the Holy of Holies, and in another sense, he offered it there for himself, for, not for himself, but for the sins of the people. And the demarcation would be of the cross would be when the completion of the sacrifice was performed, when he entered into the Holy of Holies. But I said, for whatever it's worth, uh, that uh, seems to be the idea here, that he took it, and when he went into the Holy of Holies, he uh, completed the sacrifice that was begun by his being slain on the cross. And also, if that be the case, uh, it would uh, also have to do with the thief on the cross as well, <laughs> along those same lines, but for whatever that's worth. But anyway, the, both the annual atonement and the sin offering was offered in the Old Testament. And now Jesus Christ uh, is the antitype of both. He uh, himself was the antitype of the atonement, which was an annual sacrifice for the sins of the nation, but also the daily sacrifices that were offered for sin from time to time. Uh, those daily sacrifices also, uh, he took the place of them as well. If you notice in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, uh, where he compares the two, for the law having uh, a shadow of good things to come, Hebrews 10 verse 1, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the uh, very image of those things, can never with those, those sacrifices they offered year by year continually take away the uh, commerce there to uh, continually make the commerce there to perfect. For then uh, would they have not ceased to be offered. So he took the place, or was the antitype of the annual sacrifices, those that were offered year by year, the atonement sacrifice. But also there were those down in verse 11, and every priest standed daily ministering and offered all times the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. But this man, after he had suffered one, offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So he stood in place of both the annual sacrifice and the daily sacrifices of sin, uh, of sin offering, and he took it all as the sacrifice for the sin of the people. That he took the place of the annual sacrifice as well as the daily sacrifices or the uh, 
a sin offering. And it's also a stable high priest. The Old Testament high priest, he points out in Hebrews chapter 7, that they uh, were not suffered or not allowed to continue because of death. Chapter 7 and 23. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. You'd have this man would be a priest, and then he'd die, and they'd put another one in. He'd die, they'd put another one in. Maybe this one would become disabled or for some other reason. He, he could no longer serve. He'd be set, put aside and another one be in. But not with Jesus. They, Jesus would not die. Jesus became the high priest of Christians in the first century. He's been the high priest of Christians ever since. He'll be the high priest of Christians as long as the world stands. He's not replaced uh, by death as those were on the First Testament. And he's telling these Hebrew people that want to go back to that First Testament, look what you're giving up. You're giving up a priesthood that never dies. You're giving up a priesthood that uh, will not be with you maybe perhaps even next year but now you've got a priest that lives forever and he goes on to say that he's able to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him Hebrews 7 and verse 25 the uttermost I believe in that context means he's able to complete the job you will not have to in your lifetime of serving the Lord in my lifetime of serving the Lord for example Say the over seventy years, uh, Jesus Christ been my high priest. I've never had another. I'll never have another. He's able to get the job done, and we can be thankful that every time we get ready to approach God, that we still have the high priest, and he's there and capable to give us time. Uh, give us a help and to give us mercy and to give us the grace that we need in time of need and the help that we need in time of need. And he, that by priest, not only will he um, live forever, but he's not subject to human failure whatsoever. He's always the same. So he's a stable high priest. Some of the high priests on the Old Testament were not so stable. They not only did they die off, but sometimes they acted up in ways that they ought not to act. We should never have a high priest that way. So every time I pray to God, I need to have in my mind, hey, I'm praying to God and able to pray to God and pour out my heart to God without going through an earthly high priest. I can go through this high priest and he's there. He'll take my prayers. He'll present her unto God. He will intercede, make intercession for me. He will intercede for me. He's the one who stands between me and the Lord. Not an earthly high priest, but a heavenly high priest that's always there willing to help. And that's the reason we ought to always confidently pray to him and know that we're going to receive grace from him because we have a high priest far exceeding 
even the priests that God set up in the Old Testament. Those Old Testament priests were just a shadow of that which to come. We've got a priest that lives forever, one that we can depend on, unchangeable, same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever. And it tells us he's also a priest over the house of God, that is, over God's people. And But his priestly benefits are conditional. If we receive the benefits of the priesthood of Christ, we have to meet certain conditions. First of all, of course, we have to be a Christian. And uh, those in Acts chapter 2 that obeyed the gospel, uh, they became subject then to the priesthood of Christ as well as to his kingship. And that uh, priesthood is continually available to us. If we walk in the light, is he's in the light. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Men sin, rather than sin, and they need the Lord every day. And what a blessing we have to have a priest through whom we can go and approach God knowing that we have a priest that has empathy for our position and we're presented in a way unto God that's in our best interest as well as to, in the interest of carrying out the will of the Father. You may be here tonight and for some reason or other you've not submitted yourself to that priest, not for... Uh, Submit yourself to Jesus as Lord, then you need to do that while we stand together and while we sing.